Paul refers to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles, sent by God to reveal God's plan. In this section of Ephesians, he describes God's plan and his role in making it known. Reading from Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 6. God's plan is that the Gentiles would be co-heirs and parts of the same body, and that they would share with the Jews in the promises of God in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I became a servant of the gospel because of the grace of, that God showed me through the exercise of his power. God sent me to reveal the secret plan that had been hidden since the beginning of time by God, who created everything. God's purpose is now to show the rulers and powers in the heavens the many different varieties of his wisdom through the church. This was consistent with the plan he had from the beginning of time that he accomplished through Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Christ, we have bold and confident access to God through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to become discouraged by what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is why I kneel before the Father. Every ethnic group in heaven and on earth is recognized by him. I ask that he will strengthen you in your inner selves from the riches of his glory through the Spirit. I ask that Christ will live in your hearts through faith as a result of having strong roots in love. I ask that you'll have the power to grasp love's width and length, height and depth, together with all believers. I ask that you'll know the love of Christ that is beyond knowledge so that you'll be filled entirely with the fullness of God. Glory to God, who is able to do far beyond all that we ask or imagine by his power at work within us. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and always. Amen. The word of the Lord. The theme of this passage is what, as you just heard Katie read in the Common English Bible, um, is God's plan. If you were looking on in the New International Version from the Pew Racks, it translates it as God's mystery. And I think if you combine both of those, you get, you get the real emphasis Paul has in this passage. It is God's mystery plan. Um, the mystery is not secret, and though it has formerly been hidden, it has now been revealed by God to Paul and to the apostles and prophets, and now to all of us. And Paul has made his life mission that of making this plan known to the world, especially the non-Jewish world. Paul says something about the nature of this mystery and the revelation of it. 
First, the revelation of God's plan. Simply stated, he says, God's plan is to bring all creation together in Christ. In other words, to restore what has been uh, maligned and mis- Um, and has gone awry, has gone astray, however you want to use the expression to say that we have had a major disconnect with God and with one another, and things are not the way they were originally intended to be by God. So the way God created this world, it's not the way we experience it um, because because of sin. And in sending Jesus, that has been altered, that has been uh, redeemed is the word that Paul often uses. It's been reclaimed by God, and now God's recreating things the way it was intended all along. Simple plan is to unite people and nations that were formerly separate and hostile toward one another into one new body, a new society of human beings, a new way of being human toward one another. A community formed in Christ which could never be orchestrated on our own. No peace treaty could ever hold this together the way in which the act of God in Christ has. Now, as to the nature of this mystery, I'm going to use an an exercise. Actually, you are. So I want you to use either the back of your bulletin. There's a little space in the right-hand corner. Or if you go behind the pew ra- behind the welcome cards in the pew racks, there might be note cards there. And so however much space you need, I want you to draw nine dots that look similar to this. Uh, something in parallel and uniform space between them. All right? This is called the nine dot exercise. So, so um, if it looks like a domino, you're getting close. Okay? So... Um, so draw those dots, and now here's the exercise. Using a pencil or a writing instrument, you have to connect all nine dots without lifting your pencil with four straight lines. Connect all nine dots without lifting the pencil uh, using four straight lines. And no doubt, your drawing is going to look something like this. And the reason for it is we, we just think dot to dot. We think in terms of boundaries. Imagine boundaries that you just go within this ordered space, right? But the key to solving it is you have to draw a line beyond those imagined borders. They don't, there's no border there. You go past the last dot and now you can now connect all nine together. And leaders often use this as a way of thinking beyond the getting outside the box without thinking, having your thinking being limited to think beyond that. But I think in so many ways, this is exactly what Paul is saying about the mystery of God. The point is that It allows us, when we have a way of seeing the world around us based on very conventional previous thought patterns, we can go from where we go from one event to the next and we try to make sense of our world based on those linear chronological events and it just doesn't sometimes. But when 
you see the world differently. You don't, you have, you come to realize God's not linear. God's not, God is beyond spatial limitations and time limitations. In Paul's day, the people of God saw the plan of God was simply to, um, was, was to save the people of God, the people of Israel. And Paul was saying, you know, that's an imagined boundary because God's all plan all along, you can go all the way back to Abraham, was to save the world, to choose a people and through them to reach the whole world. In Paul's day, people had imaginary boundaries that connected their dots. And Paul sees the formation of the people of God, the church, God's new people united in Christ as a demonstration that God is doing a new thing that's beyond people's imagining. A new way of living in relationship to one another and to God. I hate to remind us of things like this, but it's important to set the context. Three years ago, in San Bernardino, on a Wednesday, four people were killed and 20 others seriously injured in a terrorist attack consisting of a mass shooting and an attempted bombing. The perpetrators were a married couple from Redlands, and I am not mentioning their names on purpose. I never want to mention... Um, names when, uh, when associated with evil. He was a U.S.-born citizen of Pakistani descent who worked as a health department employee and his wife, a Pakistani-born permanent resident of the United States. And this was the shocking part that American citizens would, would, um, would wreak such havoc on, on fellow citizens. They targeted a San Bernardino County Department of public health training event and Christmas party where some 80 people were in attendance. The following Sunday, so that was Wednesday, on that Sunday, two men of Arab descent entered the Presbyterian Church of Canoga Park located in San Fernando Valley. The 150-member church where everyone knew one another were well aware of the presence of these two strangers. Imagine if that had happened here. They could have reacted with fear and distrust toward these two young men, but instead they showed them warmth and hospitality. The next Sunday, the two returned with another friend, a female friend. And over the next seven months, along with two more Muslim friends, they met with a pastor, Jonathan Labarge, who taught them about Jesus. Their original intent in coming to the church was out of frustration of the violence associated with Islam. And after seven months, they became followers of Jesus. I loved when Jonathan was telling me this story. His wife, Christy, they were co-pastors at one time, but now she works full-time in a, in a mission-related um, um, organization that serves uh, Presbyterian churches of Southern California, and I'm hoping to engage her too here in Northern California. Um, but I said, well, what did you, how did you do that? What did you do to, 
to, to move them toward faith. And she reaches over and puts her hand on his arm, which a good spouse always does. And she goes, the answer is God. In other words, she knew he was about to say, well, I did this and I did that. And he looked at her and he looked at me and he said, it was God. <laughs> Since that time, this is just stunning. More people have come to faith and Jonathan reports that 20 adults from Iran or as they prefer to say, Persia, have been baptized into faith. Twenty adults in one church. Jonathan calls it the Persian Spring. <laughs> Amazing thing, three years later, this year, three from that group have now become church officers and serve as deacons in the church. Now, the, con the composition of Canoga Park Presbyterian Church was already 50% Latin American, Central and South American people. So already, they have an English-speaking worship time and a Spanish-speaking worship time, and six times a year, they come together for a bilingual worship. So already, there's, there's that kind of composition of the church. Now, in addition to this ethnic group, you have the Middle Eastern Asian population in the church, which now numbers about 20%. Jonathan told me, well, actually showed me a map. You've, you've seen those world maps where we often add, invite and you put push pins to represent where the missionaries in your church are. Well, he had people put push pins where they were born. And 50% of their congregation is born outside the United States. The challenge for Jonathan as leader, where there's no natural affinity. You see, churches tend to be formed when we're making it happen based on affinity groups. We look for like people that look like us and think like us and talk like us. That's not how God does it. God brings people together who you would never sit beside, possibly. Well, I wouldn't say never. I don't mean to imply we're that, we're that out of it. But he says the, the challenge for him is to help people realize in his congregation that this is the way it's supposed to be. This is actually the way God wants it to be. As a result, he said, I do a lot of teaching out of the book of Ephesians. Which is why I decided to call him and ask him if I could share this story with you. Because in this text, Paul envisions a universal community in which Jews and Gentiles, Latinos, Caucasians, Iranians, Sri Lankans, Filipinos, Koreans, you name it. They've all come together in Christ and have become one. They've become Christ's body, the church. This was the plan of God from the beginning of time, Paul says. And the mystery of God, which the Holy Spirit has now made known to us, has revealed to us. People who were not originally part of God's promise have been given new status and all the privileges of what it means to be a child of God. 
We, we used, Paul uses the word adopted later, but even adopted can sometimes imply, oh, well, you weren't actually born into the family. And Paul says, no, 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 we are all part of this family. And he offers three dimensions or aspects of what this community looks like. And listen to the word together each time. It appears each time for all three. We are heirs together with God's chosen people. Heirs of salvation, heirs of God's promises. We are members together of one body in Christ. And we are sharers together in all the promises of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. What it means to be church is to participate equally, to be part of this whole narrative, this story of what God is doing in the world. In fact, he says the church becomes the evidence that God is at work. So now we can connect the dots of the whole narrative, the whole history of the world, if you will, and what God's plan was. This is only the beginning. We who gather here and people who gather elsewhere, all of us together represent what God is accomplishing through Christ. Well, I want to show you one last chart. Looks like I know where it is. We go back to the original nine dots, but then I want to suggest what happens in all of our lives is there are dots that aren't uniform, that don't fit into any pattern. Dots that create great distress and heartache and almost cause us to become unhinged. Events that are tragic, that are painful to live through. Dots we can't connect. We can see God's plan in Jesus Christ, but what's God's plan in my own life when one of these appear? How do I, how do I make sense of that? It's really hard to understand. I get God's will for the world, but what's God's will for me personally when something like that intersects my life? It happened to Gerald Sitzer. He lost his wife, his mother, and one of his uh, three or four children. I can't remember the exact number, but one of his, his other children in a tragic automobile accident. And what happens when, when a devastation like that occurs is, is our life just is on tilt. We live on a different plane than the rest of the world. Everything keeps moving around us, but, but our... our um, our points of reference are gone. He said, I knew intuitively what I had to do to set my family on a course of healing. I suffered tremendously and wanted no more of it. I realized that how I responded to the accident would either help repair the damage done to me, my children, and many others, or it would push us further away. So my role was clear right from the beginning. God's role, however, was not clear. How, I wondered, could God allow such a tragedy to occur? He continues, It eventually occurred to me that perhaps my vision was obscured by my own finitude. 
I could only see the event from my own limited perspective. Slowly and cautiously, I began to believe that God was still at work, however, however unfathomable and mysterious it appeared to me. See, this is why we've got to give people space when they're going through something like this. It's not that you get, it's not that you, you find closure. It is an open wound that doesn't heal. And no answer we have is going to be good enough. So the best thing we can do is just be physically present to remind them they're loved. So I concentrated on doing the obvious, not on figuring out the oblique. I began to read the story of my own life through the redemptive story of the Bible. Embracing the revealed will of God I already knew and trust God was working out his will for my life in the parts I didn't know. That hidden will, is what he calls it, I sensed was not cold and hard like an icy cliff, but it was vital and dynamic like a rushing river. I learned to separate what I did know and could do from what I did not know, and I had to assume God was doing I learned to live with mystery, and that decision saved my life. So we can't make sense sometimes of, of our dots, and we might not be able to connect them all, but the parts we can connect, the parts that God gives to us and reveals to us of what his perfect will is, of what his plan is, of his unimaginable love for us, when we get that, then we can tolerate or at least live through or live with the ambiguities that we don't get. That is what Paul is saying. And the church is, is so important to our ability to get that. Because on our own, on our own, we'll never fully comprehend the love of Christ. But when you get with other people and they start to show you depths and dimensions and territories and avenues and aspects of life we've never even been to or explored, then we go, oh my. Just like what's happening in the Canoga Park Presbyterian Church. It's not some exceptional church. They're meeting just like we are today. <laughs> but God's done something marvelous in their midst. And when they think about it, and when we think about it, it is stunning, but it also is just normal. It's part of what God is up to. It's the parts we don't understand we have to trust Him with. May it be so.